Crash bang, what a, what a video. Um, so, oh, oh, it's so good to see you, Nat. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, you know. It's nice to see you. I feel like it's been a long time, but it's only been a week, hasn't it? It's been a week and a day. We, couldn't, day, record, yeah. we couldn't record on our normal Wednesday slot. And, uh, yeah, but that last, that last episode feels like it was a month ago. Yeah, it feels ages ago. feels ages ago. But it, but it wasn't, as you say. It was a week and a day. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Good. Right. Um, so coming to us live from your kitchen, which is lovely. unusual. We don't normally see your kitchen. It's a very lovely kitchen. I had a gig last night. Well, also, um, I, I sit very low in my chair normally, so um, I had a gig last night, and I decided that I was going to move uh, into my kitchen so that I could sit at my counter, my kitchen counter, and. Um, uh, sit sit more up upright. <laughs> up, upright. Posture, yeah, for my posture maybe. And uh, I actually think that there's better light here, and I quite I quite like it. So, obviously not on Zoom, it looks terrible. But <laughs> but in terms of I can see the sky. Uh, what a be- what a beautiful day it is today, guys. It is out of nowhere, out of nowhere. Um, what was your thing yesterday? Was that your gig? Or is that why you couldn't record yesterday? Were you practicing or doing some prep? No, no. I had about I had about ten minutes to prep my gig yesterday. <laughs> um, it's like one of those things. I don't know. I don't know if you're the same, Nat. But what I will do is I will book a gig in, and then I'll think, yes, I will prep that, and then it will be the day of the gig, and I'll be like, I didn't prep it. Yeah. And do then you, I, in the interim, do you feel sick about it though? Yeah, like, I, I feel that kind of thing. Like oh, I've got that to do next week. I've got that to do tomorrow. I, if I if I book a gig, well, like we, um, I mean, this is this is sort of terrible. Like when I'm on stage, I like it. Everything, everything, every single moment that it takes for me to get on stage is terrible. So just when COVID uh, started, I think I was due the day we went into the, the week we went into lockdown. I think I was due to go on tour the next week, maybe. And I was so stressed about it. And it was and when COVID happened, it was sort of like a snow day where they said, oh, you, you, the tour's been moved. And I was like, oh, OK, well, where's it been moved to? It got moved to September. And then it got moved again to the begin to next spring, um, and even though it was moved like basically a year from when I was meant to do it, it's it's still been hanging over me that in a year's time, I had to do like a thirty day tour or twenty day tour, like finish off my tour. And now it's kind of like a couple of months away, a few months away. We don't know whether we've got to move it again or cancel it altogether or what. We don't know, right? Um, and yeah, it's just been hanging over me the whole time and it makes me feel sick. And I I almost like paralyzed to the point where it's like, I, I can't, I almost have to trick myself in, uh, uh, I know that I'll be all right when I get going, Mm. but, but to get to that point. So like yesterday I was filming, it was such a long day. I, I, I went to bed at a reasonable time 
but I, I got about 20 minutes sleep. You do this thing where you think that you're... Like I, I did some filming last week as well. I've done sort of like a filming thing every week for the last few weeks. One day a week for the last few weeks. So that's good. Um, but, um, yeah, you did it. And so last week I was going to bed. I had to get up at 5.30. And uh, I set my alarm. But I set my alarm for 5.30 p.m. <laughs> and I just caught myself just before I went to sleep. I was just like, no, God, don't do that. Fucking hell. Oh, God, I almost fucked up. And so then I, you know, and so I set it for 5.30 a.m. But, like, um, uh, yeah, you always just panic that you're going to oversleep and you're going to miss the thing. And that's never... It only happened once, but um, where I overslept... Well, I told you about the time when I was directing a school play. No, I don't think so. Um, I, I must have. But um, oh, uh, you're listening to Fan Club. My name's Nick. This is <laughs> First rule of Fan Club is tell your friends. A second rule of Fan Club is please, please, for the love of God, tell your friends. About Pan Club. Um, do you know what? We've been saying that so long that I uh, actually forgot that it was a reference to Fight Club. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to remember what the second rule of Fan Club, of Fight Club was. Because I, 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 I was trying to, I was talking about the, 1999 was the best year. Was it the second best year in cinema? The best year in cinema was like 1982. And, uh, and then the next best year in cinema was 1999. Um, and that's the year, uh, like, loads of stuff, like The Matrix, Fight Club. I mean, they're not necessarily my favourite films, but, like, there was just a banger that came out every two weeks. You know, like Rushmore, American Beauty, um, obviously, End of Days. Um, you know, just, just getting there, just getting right in there right at the end. Um, yeah, I just absolutely... I was remembering that, and then I was, like, going, first rule of Fight Club is... Um, uh, don't talk about Fight Club. I couldn't remember what the second rule was, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's that. Anyway, um, so I was working on an independent film, and um, I just... Uh, my alarm didn't go off, and I missed my call time by, like, an hour. This for your and school play? No, this isn't a school play. This, oh. is an independent, this is an independent film. And I missed the court, but because it was so low budget and independent, they were way behind schedule, and actually it was all right. But, um, oh God, it was, yeah, it was, it was terrible. That's the only time it's ever happened, and it's the worst, it's the absolute worst. It's like, so when, whenever I've got filming, I, I don't sleep. And I think that that's the, if it's the first day of a job, like if you're about to do like seven weeks on Uncle, um, you don't sleep for the first day, and then you can sleep after that. But if you're only doing one day on something, it's the same thing. You don't sleep, and then you're only doing one day. And so it's been like for every single project that I've done in the last few weeks, you just don't sleep. And uh, and that's what happened. So uh, a series of Uncle would take to film seven weeks? Yeah, there's basically... Um, it's Yeah, you, you can basically film about, what, about five minutes a day. Um, and then, uh, and then there's like a rollover week to pick up anything that you've missed. But actually, the last series we did seven episodes, so I think it might have been an eight-week shoot. Um, Loaded was five and a half months. 
Wow. Um, with, with two two weeks rehearsals, so it was six months, and that's a fucking... Less than COVID, but less than lockdown, but, I mean, it was like six months. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of... If you thought about it at the beginning, you'd go mental. Like, the same um, schedule every day, getting up at 5.30 and then finish at, whatever, 7 o'clock at night, and you get home at 9 and then you just do it every day for six months. It's kind of like... It's actually really fun, and you get used to it, and actually the mornings aren't that bad. Um... Because your alarm goes off at five thirty. If your alarm, if it's a Saturday and you wake up at ten and you lie in bed for like an hour, two hours, th- fuck it, three hours. Got you know, it's hard to get out of bed sometimes. But if you're getting up at five thirty in the morning, you sort of like leap out of bed and just like, right, I'm doing it. Okay, let's do it. There's no point in waking up at five thirty if you're just going to lie in bed for like. So you just you can you can do it. Um, but there was. Um, uh, uh, but, but yeah, so you always write. But yesterday was another sort of like it was quite a long day, and uh, I was filming for a thing, and then um, and then I got in. I think the gig was at eight, and um, I was filming in Battersea until six thirty, and so I literally got in at seven. I was so tired, I just sort of, like, sat very still in the car, and then I got in, and then it was chaos, and then I managed to do... I managed to put an, an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes of stuff together, and I was like... Oh, I kept talking until I sort of, yeah, like... you put an hour and 20 minutes together in faster than real time. Yeah, I did. I got. I put an hour and 20 <laughs> minutes together. I put an hour and 20 minutes together in, uh, in 15 minutes. <laughs> and it was good! Michael J. Fox filming uh, uh, Back to the Future. Back to the Future at the same time. Yes, Family Ties, Back to the Future. So he would film Family Ties. Family Ties wouldn't let him out of his contract. That's a really lovely story, is that he was filming Teen Wolf, and on the other side of town, they were filming Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz. It's actually... It depends who... (laughs) It depends if you're Team Michael or Team Eric... (laughs) Um, uh, I really love Eric Stoltz. I think that it's what a, what a weird career. Mm. So, do you know what I mean? It's like he had like a parallel career where he was making teen comedies at the same time as Michael J. Fox, and um, and then by the time he did like he was Lance in Pulp Fiction, um, and he was in Killing Zoe as well, which was uh, produced by um, Tarantino. So he had sort of like this weird sort of like parallel career where they were both Michael J. Fox, uh, they were both Marty McFly at one point. And then, um, so the, so basically, the people that made Back to the Future, they wanted Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox wasn't allowed out of his Family Ties contract. So they ended up having to recast him with uh, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz filmed for, what, six weeks? Something like that, and they just said it didn't quite work, or it wasn't. He, he's a very serious actor. He's sort of like a method actor, and he played it like a haunted and harrowed teenager. And there wasn't sort of like a lightness. You know, you're always talking about light comedy, what a skill light comedy is. I think Michael J. Fox is perfect example of that as well. Just how it's it's, it's invisible as well in general. It's that thing where it's doing something, being kind of funny without being comedic. It's just that kind of... It's like a lightness of touch or something. Yeah. That, Grant's very good at it. That's why I often talk about him as well. He's <clears> and yeah, the, very well. There's something going on um, uh, behind their eyes that isn't 
there isn't intense intensity you know it's um it's kind of like it's, yeah and Cary Grant as well uh, you know it, um uh yeah it's just uh, I think it's a it's a real sort of like underrated skill um anyway so so Eric Stoltz, they had to fire Eric Stoltz. All of the cast were sort of like, except for uh, Thomas Wilson, who <laughs> didn't get on with it. <laughs> I think all of the cast were sort of... And then I think they had to recast Jennifer because the original actress that played Jennifer was way too tall for Michael J. Fox. Um, but everyone had like worked with Eric Stoltz for like all this time and then Michael J. Fox had to come in. So they wouldn't let him out of his contract for Family Ties. So what he would do is he would film Family Ties... From like, I guess he was getting well. I mean, he would be filming it and rehearsing it all week, and then uh, from like nine o'clock in the morning to whatever at night, and then he would get in a car, and they would drive him across town, and um, he'd have he'd sleep in the car for like an hour, and then he would film Back to the Future all night, which is why I guess all the parking lot stuff, aside from plot. The parking lot stuff is all at night, so it was actually quite kind of like that was that was his evenings. It wasn't even his evenings. It was daytime stuff, but weekends and stuff, probably. I guess. Or... I guess he'd do. I guess he would do the weekends, and then and then he would go back to filming Family Ties in the week. And yeah, absolutely crazy schedule. But he was filming Teen Wolf when Eric Stoltz was filming Back to the Future, and he was going. Oh, I wish I wasn't in this shitty fucking werewolf film. I wish I was doing Back to the Future, and then. He did Back to the Future. Back to the Future was a huge hit, and the makers of Teen Wolf went, right, let's release Teen Wolf, and we'll cash in on Michael J. Fox. And it's kind of, yeah. And his book, he's got another book out, and I'm sure he's written some others, but he wrote a book called Lucky Man, which is, which is like a really sort of inspiring book. But like all of that stuff, like, in terms of, like, comedy, all of that stuff that he did in Spin City when... Um, so he got uh, Parkinson's... Um, they think it was brought on by the um, the hanging sequence in Back to the Future 3, where he was being dragged along the ground. Uh, he has a noose around his neck because they're going to hang him in the in the square. And then he gets sort of like dragged along by a horse. And um, something went wrong with the stunt and it actually, I think he blacked out for a bit. And they think that something happened with his nerves or something. And when he was filming Doc Holliday... Doc Hollywood with um, uh, Woody Harrelson. I think there was a thing where he had like um, his hand over his eyes because I think he was he had like a bit of substance. I think he was he was drinking a lot, and he had his hands over his eyes and his finger would flutter and he he thought it was like a moth or something, and his finger would flutter and he was just like well there's something's wrong. He had this uncontrollable kind of like. Um, twitch in his hand and um and he he did i don't i don't know if he got it like checked out straight away but it was kind of like this thing that grew and grew and then by the time he found out then he went back and he did um spin city and if you rewatch spin city he's always moving like he didn't tell anyone that he had parkinson's for a very long time and he's always moving in spin city he's always sort of like literally there's never a second where he's not, he'll get like, um, he'll be putting his hands in his pockets, taking his hands out of his pockets, picking up a pen, clicking a pen, and he's and you watch him and he's like a whirlwind. He walks into every scene and he's just always moving. And it was because he was trying to sort of like, it's like a really great performance in that sitcom, but he, it was partially because he was trying to hide the fact that he had Parkinson's from everyone. 
um, yeah, like, interesting. Uh, but it's a really great book. Lucky Man, Michael J. Fox. Great actor. Um, Great actor, love him. Great and underrated. I think I think he's kind of like he's one of those actors that's known. And if he'd only done Michael, uh, Marty McFly, that's fine. But um, and people love that character and that film and that franchise, but specifically, I think that film so much that that's all he ever needs to do. But he's good in he's good in pretty much everything. And like you were saying, um, uh, that Brian De Palma film, Casualties of War, Casualties of War. And he he did have depth, but mm. I think I think you know, if you ever see Sean Penn, you know they had so much they had so much sort of like rivalry on that set. If you ever see Sean Penn in a comedy, it's fucking awful, right? Mm. But Michael J. Fox, he could do the dramatic stuff, yeah. but the light stuff was just completely underrated. I think that's true. A lot of people, a lot of people who are very good actors, really struggle in comedies. They just can't really pull it off. It's just something that they haven't got in them. It's that lightness. I think that I think they're different skills. That intensity is very difficult to 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 like find, which I guess is why a lot of people go method. But um, and I guess that's why those actors are the ones that really sort of like, you know, I don't know, I don't know how much of that there is anymore. It feels like there's a lot of people with abs that are film stars because it's good to it's good to be chiseled but i don't know i don't you know we're not living in an age of movies I, I, I heard something in the week where they were like saying there aren't movie stars anymore what you've got instead of movie stars is you've got marvel marvel is a movie star mm. people will go and see any marvel film but they won't necessarily go and see a, any um chris hemsworth film i think that's true yeah and i think they're all trying to get other um projects off the ground but it does feel like and a lot of them are very good you know a lot of the people in them I like Chris Hemsworth a lot when I see him in stuff. He's brilliant. Um, I saw um, Extraction uh, this week, actually. Yes. It's on Netflix, and he's really good in it. I don't know, like, there's loads of good things about the film. It's really well made, and it's a Netflix film, and it feels really cinematic, actually, for a, um, for a film that's made for Netflix. And it's one of those ones where it almost makes you think it's a bit of a waste that it never got a cinema release, really. And yet Netflix are the people behind it. It's yeah. almost like they're now making these sort of... And the action's really good. He's really great in it. And he plays the character as Australian, which he is, and it sort of adds something to it. So it, it almost seems quite unusual as a leading man to be not just have an Australian accent, but there's something quite Australian about the performance, it seems. And he's, right. he seems a little bit less... It doesn't feel very Hollywoodish. It feels a bit like... He's a bit like... Um, it, feel, it feels like he's a bit more of just a regular bloke in it. It's not a brilliant film by any means, and it's a little bit... It's it's kind of got that weird thing where it's set in... Um, it's all set in, like, Bangladesh and and parts of India, and Mumbai it's set in, goes between the two. And so it's like it's him fighting people, but, of course, everyone he fights are brown people, and it always feels a bit... It's got that kind of... Visually, it doesn't look good. <laughs> Yeah. It's like well, it looks a bit... It's like Rambo, where it's kind yeah. of like, yeah, sure, I mean, he is in Vietnam, or, yeah, sure, he is in Burma, but, yeah, sure, he is in... Actually, in Rambo 3, they were all Russians, weren't they? But, like, uh, but it, it, you go, hey, aren't they a bit racist? And then you go, yeah, I don't know. I think that it doesn't feel not racist, but... Yeah. 
don't think it's. I don't think the intention was. I just think visually, it's not a good look. Absolutely, the intention for Chris Hemsworth making this film was not let's make a racist film, right? I can. Yeah, I, don't think that was I can eighty percent <laughs> guarantee that they did not set out to make a racist film. Yeah, but, it's a bit of a It's really well done. It's just it just is one of those films where you come away from it a bit like, yeah, like, yeah it's alright. It's not by all It's not a bad film. But it's like True Lies as well, where it's just kind of like, right, well, we are just going to be, you know, killing terrorists, and they're all brown people. But what we'll do is we'll have someone on the team that is has got comes from the same background, and then they're the comic relief, and we we'll all like him. So that means yeah. it's all right to kill all the others. Yeah. You know, I just think, I think that Hollywood has got a huge problem with that anyway. And it comes all the way back from the cowboys and uh, Indian days. So it's just kind of like, you know, it's just, it's just the way that they made films for ages. It's good that people aren't making films like that anymore. And it's good that it got called out on it because it was like, literally, it was like, because Extraction was really controversial. Um, but everyone kicked off about it. I don't know how much of that is people... Oh, just... I've missed any controversy about it. Oh, it was really controversial. It was like everyone called it... Well, I don't know how much of it is, like, the media that's, like, whipping it up, because there's literally nothing to report on this year other than Corona and Trump. And so it's kind of like... I don't know how much of that is... Um, also, people on Twitter, you know wokeness and all this stuff it's just kind of like yeah there is i think some people miss context and they they want something to be angry about but i think it's good to i don't know i haven't seen it but um i I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of like action films have got a long history of that he's yeah go back he's just he's got that thing in it where you go what a movie star great he kind of looks great he feels like he's he's funny He's got like he's got all the goods that in another age should be a massive star, but essentially he's just thought <laughs> trying to get something else off the ground. Well, yeah, but also uh, coming 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 back to that, I mean, the Rocky franchise has been kind of like accused of um, racism in the past because he's always beating up a black guy. Hmm. That's part, so, of the, part of the first one, though, isn't it? That's part of the. It's actually it comes into it. A yeah. A, the guy that wrote it, he wasn't a movie star. He he was white, and he wrote it, and he was in it. So, and a lot of boxers are black. So to have him fighting white people would be kind of like whitewashing it. Mm. But he has to be the lead because it's his vehicle. So it's kind of like... And then the sequel is a repeat, so it's Apollo Creed again. And the third one is like it's Mr. T, and you go right. Well, it's only, he's only beating up two black guys, but it's like been over three films now. <laughs> and so the fourth one is like, well, get a Russian this time. I have seen five and six this week, so I might talk about that in a little bit. He but, loses um, the first one, of course, as well. We, um, yeah, he does it's lose not the first one, isn't it? It's that the Apollo Creed character wants it to be. He's almost trying to find mould a new white boxer because he sort of feels that the audience is going because they feel like they want almost a, the Apollo Creed is cynically after a, a white boxer to bring back a kind of white audience to boxing. Sort of. He's like, he wants to, he wants to, um, uh, beat up 
a white guy on um, on a, it's not American Independence Day, is it? It's, a, it's like um, some sort of he, he comes in just as George Washington and everything. I don't know. I I, I just think that the the I, somebody told me in a pub that they thought um, without seeing any of the Rocky films, I think they'd read a Guardian article and they'd said Rocky's racist, and I said I don't think it is. I think it's trying to be accurate to the sport that it's portraying, but it just happens to be written by a white guy. And so, I don't know. I've just seen them all, and at no point did I think, this is racist. But then I also watched Eddie Murphy Raw, and um, he has that routine in it where he's talking about um, uh, Italian guys after they've been to see a Rocky film. And it's a really funny routine. And then you go, well, obviously people were... But it was before Rocky IV, so it's like there'd been three Rocky films that the, by the time Eddie Murphy made Raw. And so he was sort of like saying, it is always black guys, though, isn't it? And so he was calling it out back then. And I think that they, I think that they deliberately changed it by the fourth one and went, yeah, actually, there is a... You yeah. have a point. Yeah. Um, but um, not to just... Not to make it all about Rocky. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll have a rocky chat after the thing. Um, so, uh, uh, Extraction, so would you recommend it? Yeah, I think it's like, it's a really good, like, action movie. I mean, what's the shame is, it would have been a much better film were you able to watch it in the cinema, which is a shame. And I think, given that experience, people might have enjoyed it a bit more in general. I think it's done really well for Netflix. It's got a sequel, apparently, in the pipeline and things. Oh, really? And it's really well really well choreographed and the stunts are great and all the kind of fight sequences are great and they're really impressive as well it's just that you come away from it a bit like it sort of leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth you go oh okay but you know it's really well done yeah it was like the rambo film uh, the uh, last blood which wasn't a great film it was a great home alone sequel it was not a great film but like um uh yeah, you come away from it and you just feel like, ah, uh, that didn't feel not racist. I don't know how comfortable I felt watching it. The action was good, but it's just like you go, I don't believe that Stallone is racist. I'm not saying that. I don't think that it's like the Chris Hemsworth. I, I don't think that they deliberately set out to do it, but I just think that they were slightly um, naive, misguided, and maybe a bit ignorant. And that's just like. There's a naivety to how people might view the film. I don't think there's anything going into it, which is... Mm. And, you know, a lot of that's on me as well, to go, oh, OK. But also, if we're, hi we're hyper-aware, everyone's hyper-aware at the moment, so you kind of, like, go, how did they not... How were they not hyper-aware? They made it in, in the same environment that we're watching it. Mm. So how's, how's that a thing? You know, there's all a thing... Where that's how the money... It's based on a... Um, it's based on a graphic novel, which is set... I think somewhere in the Middle East. So they've changed the location anyway. And it might just be to do with like filming or someone said, hey, we can get this or some people at the minute, they're trying to get people to film in India and Bangladesh. Let's change the location and we'll just, and someone goes, great idea. And it probably just happened like that. Like If they're filming, if it'll be two things. It'll either be access to the country or it'll be whether they can get any tax breaks and it'll be cheaper. Hmm. So it'll be one or the other. If they're, if they're changing the location like that. But it was like when they did a, a, the Aladdin film, the Guy Ritchie Aladdin movie, and they colour-corrected all of the extras so that 
they all looked like Arabs, but they were they were like white people on set, and then they just digitally made them brown. And you kind of like go, well, you can't do that. What you doing? This is Disney. This is the biggest company. It was the biggest company on the planet. Um, so it's like, what you, you you if you're not aware, but that was like a couple of years ago now, when yeah. and that was really controversial. It's like extraction would have been made after that. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen it, but it was it was controversial. But also, it's I think it is because everyone is sort of like hypersensitive and hyper aware at the moment, and is people are calling stuff out. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm the um, I'm anti-racism, guys. Just in case you need to you need that pointed out. But I don't. I also don't feel like I'm the expert. Uh, I mean, I guess how you feel. I mean, I certainly felt a bit. Uh, like a little bit uncomfortable watching it, so it is like, and I hadn't, I wasn't aware of any controversy about it. Yeah, but if you felt, if you felt, if if you felt uncomfortable, then everyone felt uncomfortable, or most people felt uncomfortable. I don't know. And then some people can have that amazing ability to just switch their brains off and just enjoy stuff for mm. the, possibly the way it was intended. But there's that nagging doubt. You think. You're kind of like, I hope it was intended like this. It's entirely likely that they do a sequel to it, and you go, well, that's great. Because it feels like it's a, you know, it feels like they're trying to do a kind of fun, good, it's violent as well, very violent action franchise, and it's quite fun. He's fun in it. He's he's good. Oh, it's nice watching people explode on film. It's it's great. Um, it, uh, we got to. We, I mean, that half hour has gone by really quickly, hasn't it? It has. It has. Let's play the song now. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio, and we're back. We are back. We're back in the kitchen. So, um, <laughs> um, um. Have you seen anything else this week? I've seen too much, if anything, Nick. I've seen millions of things. Let's talk about Rockies, because we, that was finishing up thing from last week, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, just uh, I'll do it really briefly. And then, well, I, I finished Bly Manor, and I just... Mm, it was it's like... It's like... I don't really remember any of it. It was sort of... An, House on Haunted Hill. No, what was it called? The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. Um, I thought that's really stuck with me. The whatever it's nine episodes, is it or eight episodes? I think it was nine episodes. The first eight episodes of that were great, and then Blind Man hasn't stuck with me at all. And um, yeah, I just think it's I kind yeah. I, anyway, it's it's there's some absolutely bizarre choices in it where you kind of like oh, well, none of, a lot of this doesn't work, but um, there's some oh it's just weird. Although I love Henry Thomas. I've been meaning to watch more of it, and I kind of want to finish it off. But it's been a week, and I've probably seen another one. And you go, it feels like my my um, patience with it is quite small. Like it feels a bit like an effort. Like a- it, it was an effort. It was like literally. Um, I, I mean, Natalie was saying that she'd watched the first episodes or the second episode, and uh, and she was like, "I don't know if I can be bothered." And I'd got to the sixth episode, and I was like. Well, I'm going to watch the last three, but if you're if you're only two episodes in, I wouldn't bother. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a weird one. Anyway, so I started watching um, Ratched this week. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's got a really good cast. Um, it's got Judy Davis. Uh, it's got Amanda Plummer, who I recognised instantly, even though she looks nothing like Amanda. Amanda Plummer turns out. I go, that's Amanda Plummer, and uh, it's like who? And you go, oh, either Pumpkin or Honey Bun from Pulp Fiction, and um, so that was quite cool. And then it's got Sarah Paultan in it. Um, who's done loads of stuff. Oh, I watched Split last night, and and Sarah Poulton was in that as well. Split. No, not Split. Glass. Oh, that's yeah. What, that's what I watched last night. Wow, I could talk about that. <laughs> Fuck me. Fuck me. What a fucking... What a movie. Am I right? Yeah. I, 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 we've got the same taste on a lot of things. It's such a good film, isn't it, Nat? Yeah? I, I, I can predict what you're going to say. Five stars. A five-star classic. M. Night Shyamalan's done it again. Bonkers. It's bonkers. It's like every choice you've made, you've gone, what? It's not even just why. There's a lot of what about it. Like, that's a terrible... Imagine, imagine if you're a big fan of Unbreakable and you're like, finally, the new Unbreakable film, and you watch it like that. If you think like the the sort of uh, split set up all the way through doesn't happen, um, and it's, uh, it's what's it's, the climax? What's the climax? What is the climax meant to be? What do you well, think? All the way along, don't they? About there's going to be this big thing. Is it at the Empire State Building? They're talking about having this big. It, no, they're in. It's in Philadelphia. There's this big CGI building in the middle of Philadelphia that they've kind of made like the Avengers building. And they're going to go... Because there's a thing, they say, this building is a marvel. And it's kind of, like, heavily implied that it's the Avengers building in Philadelphia. And so what, they're going to go there and destroy it? That's like, yeah, they've got this big sort of... It's talked about all the way through it, like, okay, so this is what we're leading up to, this big sort of... uh, And it sort of ends in, like, a car park instead. (laughs) The whole film is filmed in cells and corridors and, and then at the end, the big... Climax is in a car park, and you go, oh, and you've got McAvoy doing his acting show reel all the way through it, and it's just kind of like, this is what is this? And like, yeah, like you say, I liked. No, I didn't like. No, I was going to say I liked the links to Unbreakable. I think what you just got to accept is Unbreakable is one standalone movie, and it's absolutely does its job, and it's not as. Memorable as The Sixth Sense, but you kind of... If you've seen The Sixth Sense too many times, watch Unbreakable. It sort of does the same thing in a bit, in a different genre. But, like, Split was... I've got one word review for Split. <laughs> it rhymes with Split? It rhymes with Split. Right. And then um, and then Glass, I've got one, one word review for that as well. Right. Glass? <laughs> it does rhyme with right. Glass. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I watched it. I think it's because um, I, uh, I was on my own last night, and I thought I'll watch something that will have no bearing on my relationship. It'll be something sh- she won't want to watch this, so I'll just watch it. And I was like, "What a wasted evening!" <laughs> um, so yeah, fuck it, fuck That's it. Uh, but Sarah Paulson's in it. Oh uh, no, I thought I'd left the. I thought I'd left uh, the meeting. Spoilers, but uh, I mean, if you haven't seen Glass and you want to, to, to cover your ears for a minute, but to have the character from Unbreakable basically ends by drowning in a puddle. Is just <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like what you've just. You've just drowned Bruce Willis in a puddle? What? In a car park? In a, a shit... 
like um it like, feels like it feels like um uh it feels like M. Night Shyamalan went, I've reinvented you, Bruce Willis, in the sixth sense. <laughs> And uh, and twenty years later, fuck you! I'm just going to drown you. I I can make your career. I can I can end it. It's another one like we talked about once upon a time in Mexico, where it feels like everyone signed up for a couple of days. They've all done their bit, <laughs> and they've like he's tried to like edit a film together, cutting bits of film to go like, oh. oh. There you go. Here's my big sequel that you've all been waiting for. He would have had, like, so much creative control over that. And when he realised that, oh, well, I can't blow up a building, you just go, just rewrite the entire film, mate. Just rewrite it. You know, it's fucking, yeah, crazy film. Anyway, so I started, I started watching Ratchet. Um, Ratch, I always thought her name was Nurse Ratchet, but it's oh, Nurse right. Ratchet. Um, one Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which is weird because it's my favourite book. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is one of my favourite books it is maybe my favorite book the film i think is incredible right absolutely incredible from beginning to end what a movie ratchet is a prequel series uh where you find it's a pointless it's a it's pointless right that's my reason for not watching it i find i wonder what happened to her when she was younger no i i i i for my for my take on One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, you've got Nurse Ratchet. She um, is an authoritarian. She's just she's not evil, but she's sort of like one of those um, uh, mums from the eighties that tried to ban heavy metal. You know, she's kind of like I imagine she goes to church on a Sunday. She's and she she likes everything the way it is, and then she gets challenged by uh, Jack Nicholson, R.P. McMurphy. And um, uh, and there's a very sort of subtle cat and mouse game where Jack Nicholson thinks that he is kind of like the man who's uh, who's uh, kicking against the fence, and he's kind of like uh, pushing the, uh, the authoritarians, and he's 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 pushing the authority, and um, and uh, and he's kind of like showing everyone that there's a better life, and what he doesn't realise the whole way through is that she is completely in charge. And her performance in that movie is... Uh, she won an Oscar for it. Her performance in that movie... What's, what's her name? Jessica... Yeah, I can't think. Uh, no, it's gone. Natalie? Um, I, I want to say Jessica Fletcher, but it's not Jessica Fletcher. That's Murder, she wrote. Um, uh, but her performance in that, she got an Oscar for it. It's just so subtle. She's not evil. She's not anything. She's well, She is evil. She's just got this cold, steely-eyed... Um, yeah, she's sort of... Yeah, she's just... It's maybe... She, I mean, she's not not evil. She's the epitome of evil. She's... She, it's just like this... It's, anyway, it's incredible. It's incredible. And then you've got, like, this series, which is called Ratchet which is really stylized. It looks absolutely fantastic, but there's not, like, a single scene that really rings true. And it's kind of like it's showing how she got her position in the... In the I guess it's going to end with her getting a position in the, the place where um, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is set. Mm. But it, it's like... It's, it's like House of Cards, where she's sort of, like, manipulating everyone. She's like this puppet master, this, like, arch-villain that's coming in. Everything is really arch and really kind of, like, she's really fucked up. And she's, um, uh, she's like, getting people murdered and killing people. And you just sort of, like, go, 
there is sort of an element of that when Billy Bibbit, um, spoiler alert for a film that was made in the 70s, but when Billy Bibbit dies, she does manipulate that um, in a way to get at Jack Nicholson, to sh make a point with Jack Nicholson. But you get the feeling that, that she's been pushed to that. She hasn't spent her whole life murdering people in hospitals. She's not like she's not like um, a Halloween costume. Do you know what I mean? She's not a slasher villain. She's a, she's a, she's a, a sociopath. She's a psychopath. She's um, she is the epitome of evil, but like everyday evil. And then you've got this ratchet thing, which looks absolutely phenomenal. It's got an amazing cast, and it's just kind of like. How did you make this based on watching that film or based on reading that book? How have you come up with this? Yeah, that's always my problem. Just the way it looked, I just went, well, it's never been a, an issue for me. It's never been like a question unanswered or anything. I never felt like there was more to it than what you got already. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's there's a need for it or like. It's, well, it's like Prometheus. It's like yeah, this 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 thing where you go, I get this. You've got you. you do you know what? You've got like um, um, you've got a brevity. Brevity. Mm -hmm. What does brevity mean? That's kind of shortening. Uh, short. Yeah, you've got a brevity of uh, information in the film which uh, benefits. The, the the storytelling it's kind of like it's there's a shorthand to it where you understand everything and it's actually economic it's economic storytelling where you watch it and you've got all the information you need and it's actually a real skill to do that and so when you watch alien and you see the space jockey and there's this it's called alien it's not called fucking uh, intergalactic space weapon do you know what i mean it's called alien it's about an alien right it's about an alien species. So you see the space jockey and you instantly go, wow, imagine the size of this universe. So these things that we're not even going to talk about that have existed for centuries without our knowledge. And we're not even going to talk about that. And, we're just gonna, and it just makes the whole universe huge. And so to not go into that shows restraint and you get all the information you need and the film is perfect, right? And the same with uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, where it's just, um, you go, I don't need to know any more about these people because you've done the storytelling so well, I know who they are. So to go back and then just explain it, and then you go, did we watch the same fucking film? Is this what you dreamt of when you wanted to make it? It's, it's, it's just, it's bonkers that you've gone, I've taken this thing that's very subtle and I've made it into this. And I haven't read any reviews and I don't know what the popular opinion is or anything like that. But from my point of view, I just was just like, I was just like tutting at the screen the whole way through. Just like, but why would she do that? And that was very convenient. And, you know, she's like this fucking massive puppet master, which is who's manipulated every single element around her uh, in order to get what she wants. And yeah. that is to work at a hospital. And you go, that is absolute... I mean, it's, um, it feels like it's a betrayal of the character. Uh, we still don't know who the actress is that played... Sarah uh, is in the TV show, who I like. I think he's great. And I, I really like Amanda Plummer, actually. Uh, who, who, who do you like? Amanda Plummer and Sarah Paulson. I like them both. So I like them both, but it doesn't... Nothing about it made me think, oh, I must watch this, or... Uh, it just felt, yeah, like totally pointless to me. It just sort of felt like, and also it almost felt like it wasn't necessarily in the tone or 
the spirit of the film or anything. It didn't feel like it was a a connection otherwise other than it's like a name recognition. Yeah. And it, oh, right, well great, we've got another I can't I can't I can't, I can't stress how beautiful it is to look at. It's it it just it looks absolutely incredible. But you just think this is just like and also don't call it wretched. Just if it was called anything else, and you've and, and in actual fact, it works best when you forget it's got anything to do with one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You go, yeah, it's actually it's, it, but it's still kind of like very convenient. There's a bit when she steals some purses, and um, or she steals a purse, and it's kind of like, well, why would they have the purse on the counter with their back to it? It was just like it's just all so convenient, and then you just like, go, oh. Sarah Paulson. Funnily enough, looks exactly like Embeth Davids, right? So Embeth Davids was in Army of Darkness, and then that same year, or maybe the next year, she went on to do Schindler's List. And Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were like, "Can't believe we got her to be in Army of Darkness." You know, she's like delivering lines like, "I may be bad, but I feel good." <laughs> and uh, you found me beautiful once. Honey, you got real ugly, right? And then the next year she did Shinza's List, and they were like, we would never have been able to get her. Like, even six months later, it's impossible. And then, and then Sam Raimi made this series called American Gothic, which is a great series. And the, the woman that played um, her... Um, uh, the, the woman that played the main guy's sister... Merle? Was, was her Murley? name? She was called Merle, wasn't she? <laughs> Marlin, wasn't it Marlin? I think so. I could never work out what it was because it was always his accent. Um, Marley. She was. So I just always assumed that that was Embeth Davids because um, it looked exactly like Embeth Davids, but it's not. It's Sarah Paulson. So, but but because it's Sam Raimi, you just think, yeah, he's used the same actress from our. But she looks exactly. So apparently. Even though I doubt that there's that much of an age difference. If you see them side by side, it's almost impossible to work out who is who. But Embeth Davids played um, uh, the teacher in um, fucking uh, Matilda. And there's some sort of like online campaign to get Sarah Paulson to play a younger... whatever the teacher's called. Okay like in a prequel to Matilda or something, and it's just kind of like, well, she can't be that much younger than Embeth Davids, but also she's much older than Embeth Davids when Embeth Davids made Matilda. It's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, um, five minutes on Rocky Five and Six. Uh, Rocky Five, everyone hates Rocky Five. Stallone... Stallone is a populist, right? If you say, if someone says, "Oh, that film is shit," he either goes off box offices or popular opinion, and he, he never says anything surprising like, "Actually, I think I'm quite good in Stop on My Mum Will Shoot." He always just goes, he just throws everything under the bus if people yeah. don't like it, and um, people didn't like Rocky Five, and so he's always throwing it under the bus. And you go, "Actually, it's ninety percent a brilliant sequel to Rocky." It's, I think. There's so much good stuff. It feels like it's a real return to the franchise after Rocky IV. Rocky is probably the best... Oh, I'll get to the end. I'll get to the end. Uh, so I think Rocky V is great. And then, the, and then the ending is so sort of like... You go, you can't end the franchise with a punch-up in the street... With a street fight. You can't end the franchise like this. When I was a kid, though, that was the selling point of Rocky V. 
was that it was all street fighting. It was out of the ring. And I remember that being the thing like, oh, that's it's a proper one, is it? It's a proper... Yeah, it's not boxing, it's street fighting. But when you watch it in the context of the entire series, you go, that's everything that the franchise is against, right? Rocky isn't like this guy. He's not a thug that goes around beating people up in the street. He's a, he's a professional fighter. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of heart. And so for... For the franchise in 1990 to end like that, you kind of like go, Rocky Five isn't the problem. The last 10 minutes of Rocky Five is the problem. Um, and I think it's such a good film. His his relationship with uh, Sage Stallone in that is great. Um, I, I just think it brings all the drama back. There was no drama in uh, Rocky Four. It was all sort of like I pumped up to 11 and it was all montages and all kind of... It was so glossy. It's a great film. It's the, alone at school, right, with the little girl he makes friends with. and Yeah, it, he makes, like, a gang of friends and he gets sort of, uh, you know... And the, Stallone, um, Rocky, kind of gives all of his attention to Tommy Gunn. And um, it's, just, it's just really good. There's not a lot of action or fighting in it and it's all drama and it's family drama... And they just sort of, like, return it to its roots. And I like seeing Rocky in a tiny little kitchen sat around with his family eating. I like the fall from grace, and it sort of works better in that context when he's striving for something um, than when he's got it all in Rocky Three and he's just trying to keep hold of it. Um, and then 16 years later, you have Stallone went, like, OK, fine, um, that was a terrible way to end the franchise. Everyone hates Rocky V, so he made Rocky Balboa, which is sort of like this amazing meta-autobiographical film where Stallone went... People, by the end of the 90s, which is weird because he made Copland late 90s, where he was great, but no-one went to see it, and he hated making it because he had to put on all that weight. But he's so good in that. Um but by the end of the 90s, early 2000s, he was doing stuff like Driven, which was Rocky with race cars, and uh, a Detox, um, Avenging Angelo, which is like this terrible romantic comedy with Madeline Stowe. Uh, I don't, I've never heard of that. Avenging Angelo, it's this awful yeah. romantic comedy where he plays a mobster's bodyguard who uh, um, has to, uh, who falls in love with his daughter. That's passed me by entirely. It's terrible. It's like straight to video. Um, it's not terrible, but it's sort of like it's it's a comedy without any laughs, and there's no action in it. He made Get Carter. Uh, he was he had sort of like a small part in Shade, uh, so he was kind of like straight to video. It was a joke. Nobody liked him, and then he said, "I'm going to make another Rocky film," and then everyone was like, "You're fucking kidding, right?" And that's what the plot of the film is. Like Rocky saying, "I'm going to go for one more fight," and everyone's going, "You're fucking joking, right?" Um, and I think Rocky Six is not as well directed as Rocky Four. Uh, it's not as good in terms of what it, it's very sort of like clunky. It's very sort of like meat and veg. He's put a film together with his big sausage hands, and he's kind of like gone. This is it. It's kind of a little bit like. Um, glass in a way where he's kind of like what have we got what are we working with this is our budget this is our time restraint i'm going to put this film together and it works so well the speeches are incredible he brings something new to all of the uh, fight scenes in terms of uh, aesthetics like how the film looks feels like it's a, a real fight 
It feels, it's like, feels like more of an indie film almost, doesn't it? it has yeah. that kind of modern kind of indie feel. Yeah, it's 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 like it's a totally it's a, when you watch them all in, in a row, it's like a totally different beast to the other films. But it is, I think it is just insanely good. There's so many there's so many great speeches in it. I just love it. So I would say, wrapping it up, Rocky One is the best. But either joint best or followed very, very soon, you know, very near is uh, Rocky Balboa. Um, and then uh, Rocky uh, Rocky Five is has got... It's just a really good sequel to the first Rocky, I think, except for the last ten minutes. Um, and then Rocky Four is the best directed. And, uh, and then you've got Rocky Two, which is like a rehash, but it's still very... I've got a lot of time for it. And then Rocky Three, which is like, nah, I'm all right. <laughs> Um, so that's it, and I've got like I, I might see the Creeds. They're sort of like it's, a, it's, it's sort of a different franchise, but um, I might see the Creeds next week and maybe just finish off and talk about them. But um, ah, I've quite liked this little exercise that um, I've invented. I think I'm the only person that's watched all the Rocky films and seen them all in a row. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then I'll do the Police Academies again. Right, let's do some anything to add, Nathaniel. Uh, no, other than I think I recall liking the Creeds more than you did, but we'll see. I just think Creed is a less um, rounded character. I think he's. Uh, he, I think he's. I mean, Rocky is one of the most likable characters that has ever been created for film, hmm. and Creed has got a lot to sort of like live up to, and he's just not as likable. There's, there's, you know, it's it's. Um, I think it's amazing. I think that, that when you look at something like. Um, the Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy, how to treat legacy characters and introduce a new character, you go, well, just look at Creed. They did it perfectly. You've got a new character who you do care about, but he's just slightly less likeable than... But that's because you've spent a lot less time with him as well. Um, so you've got this new character, then you've got like the old character who turns up and he's like the mentor character. He's still got a story, but you're not disrespecting his legacy and what it, all the films that he made beforehand. It's kind of like it's the perfect way of bringing in, you know, creating a sequel sort of like franchise. When you look at the Star Wars trilogy sequels, you go, why didn't you just do what Creed did? You fucked this. You fucked it systematically over and over again for three movies, and now you haven't got a franchise anymore. Now you're starting from scratch. Whereas all you need to do is kind of like go, hey, all the guys that watch the originals, you can come in, but we're also trying to get a new audience. Yeah. That's how I feel. And if you don't agree with me, you can fuck off. So, we've got one piece of fan mail this week. Okay. That's a shame. That's a shame. Isn't it? That's a shame, because no-one's telling their friends. Oh, yeah, that's what it proves. Oh, well. Uh, come on, Brian. What have you got to say for yourself? Hey, Nick and Nat, how you doing? I'm just going to read your fan mail for you. OK. Thanks for having me in every week, by the way. It's a real, real honour to be here. Uh, got a new album coming out. Got a new album. It's not just the one song. It's a new, a whole new album of ACDC. So I hope you, hope you enjoy it. Uh, when you get round to giving it a spin on you, I guess it's a turntable. Right, yeah. That's what you have now, yeah. Okay. Spin it, it on your, on your MIDI disc. So here we go. Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. 
the play Nick saw with his family is called Beautiful Thing, which is a brilliant play. If little Orker, I'll sit in next to your dad. I watched the film as a kid and I really recommend it. Not only a great gay coming of age film, but one of the few films I've seen that paints Councillor Steed living in a positive light with a soundtrack featuring the mamas and the papas. It's a great fucking movie. All the best, Lewis. It was, it was called Beautiful Thing. And I do remember it being a great play. And I thought, and I remember the set. The set was like, basically, it was um, it was like two or three stories of a council estate that was at the back of the thing, and it all took place there. It was, it was, a, it was a good play. I was eleven. For a movie, didn't they? There's a movie that came out in the nineties of it. That's, that's what they're saying here. They're saying, oh, right, okay. We've seen the film. Uh, didn't you hear Brian Johnson just say that? Yes. I did yes, see that you sort of drifted off. Uh, it's fine. That's the that's the. That's the pros and the cons of Zoom, isn't it? When you're having a conversation, you can actually see the dead eyes of a shark as the the black eyes roll back to white as Brian Johnson reads out another fan mail. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's it's great. It was just very awkward um, as an 11 or 12-year-old boy sat next to... Um, his entire family listening uh, about uh, being masturbated with uh, peppermint uh, foot lotion uh, when you know for a fact that your dad hadn't done any research into what he was taking his wife to see on her birthday. Uh, it was news to all of us as it was unfolding, and you go, great. But, um, yeah. And that is all our fan mail. Right, right in. Right, please, right in. please. Uh, third Riddle Fan Club, please, for the love of God, write in. Okay, let's play a song. Well done. Metcalf's fan club on Uber Radio. Right. We're back. We're back live. We're not live. Uh, we're pre-recording, and we're in the studio. We're not in the studio. We're in my kitchen, and Nat is in his washroom. Uh, so there we go. And uh, answers on a postcard. It was Louise Fletcher from one, not Jessica Fletcher, this, the, the character from Murder She Wrote, but it was Louise Fletcher, the Oscar-winning actress who was in Exorcist Two and Invaders from Mars. So, uh, here we go. Right, we're now joined uh, by a very prolific uh, actor, uh, Miranda Raisin. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much, and thank you for calling me prolific. You are prolific. We were going through, oh. your, uh, you were going through your CV, and you've done fucking loads. A couple of those things, I have to say, were like my cousin hiring me to do an episode of Emmerdale when I was starting out. There are a couple of credits on there that were definitely sort of charity at the beginning. That's Your my counts, entire. That's my counts. entire CV. That, 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 that's it. Still counts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so you you're uh, currently um, in uh, season two of Warrior, which is uh, on Sky One on Wednesdays at ten pm. So, what we tend to do is we trying to get the plug out the way uh, right at the top, and then we just have a chat. So, uh, do you want to tell us a little about that? You weren't in the first season of Warrior. No, I wasn't. I I joined series two. Um, my first episode was actually last night, and I play Nellie Davenport, who's based on a real woman, actually, who was called Donaldina Cameron, who rescued the uh, 
Chinese, I say underage prostitutes, I mean, they were child prostitutes um, from the crib brothels in San Francisco. So warriors all set in the Tong Wars of San Francisco in the 1880s. And, um, yeah. Is it right? Is it right that this is like a concept? This is like an old Bruce Lee concept. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was his his idea, his passion. He wrote um, a kind of rough draft of it all, um, and he was supposed to do it. And then they cast it uh, with a white man. They cast David Carradine and called it Kung Fu. Oh, um, the Kung Fu the series? Yes. So actually it bears very bear, very little to no resemblance of well, Kung Fu. But Kung Fu was sort of like a prototype for stuff like Knight Rider, where it's like a guy that goes from town to town doing stuff. Right, right, right. Well, there's still, I mean, really it bears so little resemblance, but our Sam, the, the main character, is played by Andrew Koji, who's kind of the, the Bruce Lee character. And Shannon Lee, Bruce Lee's daughter, is one of the executive producers. Um, but he does play a kind of, he's sort of, Almost the yeah the wandering warrior, um, yeah. And during all the kind of Tong Wars, but I guess that's something that you're kind of familiar with in kind of old, I guess sixties and seventies movies. But then it always has that kind of air of being a bit imperialist, and this is probably a, a much more modern right. take on it. Much right? more modern, and also this is very much told from the point of view really of 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 the Chinese. This is this is their story. It's not just, you know, where you've got kind of the Chinaman who feeds the bodies to pigs kind of thing. Not that that character in Deadwood isn't amazing, but you know, this is very much told from a point of view that we haven't heard before and a very kind of politically important point of view. And it's also interesting that you think of all this stuff that happening in the world at the same time. So you in Britain, I guess it's a kind of Victorian era Britain. And in America, you've got the Old West happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and you've got the, the Irish immigrants, and yeah, there's a, there's there's a lot going on, a lot of potential conflict. And the Chinese, the Chinese immigrants were building all of the uh, train tracks from one one side of America to the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's it like stepping into like a second series where you weren't involved in the first series? So I was a bit nervous because everybody kept talking about how lovely everyone was and how it was like family, and that just brought out my English kind of sceptic. I was like, oh, God, everyone's going to hate each other. But actually, it was amazing. Everyone was completely welcoming. It was... It's the biggest set. I mean, I've done, you know, a few kind of big projects, but this was a set where they had built streets. They they built a town, basically, in Cape Town Studios. Um, And so kind of stepping on for the first day, you know, I don't know if I can... Can I swear on, on you? Yeah. Okay, that, so the horse shit was real, like real, you know, real horse shit from last year as well as this year. The kind of straw and the flies and the everything, and the, so in a way, the scale of it was so huge that when it got to, because I was I shot almost straight after I arrived, um, it, it you were kind of in it straight away, and it mm. was you know there was no time for weird politics. Or, when you say you're in it, you don't actually mean specifically the horse shit. I'm sure there was some horse. I'm sure the, the wardrobe <laughs> department had to work pretty hard after anyone shot. I'm all for real. Does it have to be that real? <laughs> well, you know, it works. It does actually work. And apparently the horse shit looked much better in season two because a lot of it was caked and old. It's the kind of thing that, you know, that um, HBO incredibly um, dedicated scene builders matter. Yeah, yeah, they were thrilled about that. There's a horse <laughs> wrangler in the credits. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he may be called something slightly more glamorous, but that's what he is. Oh, but I, d- I don't see why... Yeah, yeah, um, so you weren't replacing anyone. You, it, was a, it was a new character for this season. It's a new character and a new love interest for um, uh, Olivia Cheng's character. She plays Artoy, who's the sort of um, 
powerhouse, amazing woman who runs a brothel, but not one of the brothels that Nellie is rescuing girls from. Um, her brothel is a lot more elite. <laughs> um, and uh, and she's, yeah, they, they, they are um, from completely different worlds, but at the same time, they, they're kind of quite a good match for each other. And I think... I, I think actually how it transpired was when Jonathan Tropper, the, the creator, when they were talking about how to find a man for our toy that could kind of match her and be a good uh, love interest for her, they couldn't they couldn't think of any because so much of her life had been, you know, she'd been messed around so much in her life and abused and everything. They thought there was no way they could really do that with a man. So <laughs> they weren't they weren't women. <laughs> interesting though you're dealing with real people as well so you have to get a kind of fictionalized account of people that existed do you feel the kind of responsibility there or i guess the writers must do it sounds like they're thinking about it a lot yeah what about the the the, the real original character yeah. versus the i mean i think we, so donaldina cameron actually she died in the in the 1960s so she was several decades later not very long after but several decades after nelly um and I think beyond well, so you do see the vineyards in Sonoma, and you see, and you have to kind of. In, there is data. There are autobiographies of Donaldina Cameron, but I don't think that she had a raging love affair with a Chinese brothel owner. And I think there was a certain amount right from the beginning of just you know, it's almost like the, the graphic novel version of a character. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I guess everyone. I mean, given time, everyone kind of ends up being essentially like they're almost like. They're into the kind of public domain, don't they? And they sort of become their own... Right. Uh, I guess it's a legend, isn't it? It becomes like a legend or a fable based on real yeah. people and what whatever truth there was to people of, you know, Robin Hood or whatever becomes yeah. like a, a Exactly, legend. and Wild Bill and all those kind of... Yeah, yeah, they become their own odyssey. Wow, yeah. Um, um, one of the things I noticed you were also in, outside of that, was you were in... Uh, Death on the not you're going to death no you're in uh, Murder on the Orient Express a couple of years ago with Kenneth Brown. Well, I wasn't exactly in it. This is how much I was in it. I filmed quite a few days on it, but in the final cut, my mother, having watched it, said, "Did you have a plat for a moment? Was that you?" That that's how much I was in Murder on I, the Orient Express. I, I'm friends with I'm friends with uh, Gemma Whelan, who's uh, a really great actress, and um, she filmed in the movie Wolfman. Uh, she was on set every single day. Oh, yeah, with Jack Nicholson, was that? No, that's Wolf. No. Oh, yeah, okay. Wolfman was uh, Benicia Del Toro and uh, yes. Anthony Hopkins. And Gemma yes. Whelan filmed, like, every single day. And, um, and I managed to get my mum to go and see it with me. And I said, you know Gemma Whelan? Do you want to go and see a period movie with Gemma Whelan? <laughs> it was Wolfman. And she's in one scene. But there's a carriage right. where she was in the entire... She was she was in this whole funeral scene, but she never left the carriage. So you see the carriage. She's like, <laughs> she's like I was in the carriage. It's yeah. like so. But how many days did you do on um, uh, Merger on the Orient Express? I think I did ten days, uh, which which it, which isn't a lot in the scheme of a, of a huge shoot. But in terms of what you can actually shoot over ten days, there's quite a lot of material. But actually, they ended up. Um, the stuff that we'd shot was kind of replaced with a slightly different story. They used the beginning of the film was going to be one thing, but it turned out to be the sort of um, the, the wrapping up of Poirot's last case. Right. So I think they've they sort of made it anyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But you worked with Kenneth Brenner. At, at, uh, was that at the Globe? 
No, it was, was the Garrick. Garrick, the Garrick, Garrick. Theatre. Yeah, that's so right, yeah. You did The Winter's Tale with Kenneth Branagh and Dame Judi Dench. Yes. Um, so uh, we'll do a bit of biography stuff, like early days, but, like, um, what was what was that like? What was that? It was that was amazing. So gone. At what point in your career was that? Yeah. So that was. uh, It was actually the last play that I did. It was about four years ago. So it was just before I had my daughter, and I haven't done a play since I had her because I'm too. I can't bring myself to do it yet. But um, but uh, yeah, it was. I just said to my agent um that I didn't want to do another play um because I I just done some theatre, I wanted to do some more filming, and, and he said, you, you're, go- you're meeting for this, that we're not having this conversation, sure. you're going for this. Um, and I think okay. part of it's fear, when it's a big thing, it was Hermione, so I mean, she's sort of an, you know, a, a huge part in The Winter's Tale, and kind of, um, there were sort of four leads, I suppose, in the play, and, and she's one of them, and when I, already I knew Judy Dench and, and Kenneth Branagh were doing it, and he was directing it and he was you know and I just I think there's sometimes a bit of fear that kicks in where you go I, if I don't go for it I'll, I'll never have failed sure. and I'd already done a terrible audition for, for him a few years before to play Lady Macbeth um it was not a good audition and Why I, was uh, it, auditions are I find I find auditions who I mean I think most people find them horrific um why was why was it a bad audition so I was I can't remember why, but I, I had to come. It was a last-minute thing, and I was with my mum in Norfolk, so I had to get, like, the Kings Lynn train into London on, like, a, you know, whatever it was, but it was sort of just took forever. And so I had all this time to kind of... What I love to do before an audition is kind of go for a run or go and do something or meet a friend, just do something to kind of... And then, you know, you kind of go in fresh. I had all this kind of time on the Kings Lynn train... <laughs> sort of to work myself up and then I walked in and I wanted it so much and um and I just walked in and thought I I'm I'm not good enough to be here but it, it was, was that, it just the, the yips they call it don't they in sport was that the first time that you'd met Kenneth Burner? no I actually did, had a small part in um in my week with Marilyn I played of course, sort yeah, of the yeah. secretary of his um uh his office, um, and he played Laurence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had sort of met briefly, um, but, you know, I'm sure he didn't remember. He never made it. He never said, oh, yes, it's you again. It was just, you know, it was one of those things that, that wasn't, that was just wasn't meant to be. And did you bring that up with him that you auditioned? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't think ever. <laughs> In a five-month run, I never mentioned it. The Winter's Tale is, is that one of the problem plays? Yes. So is. I studied Winter's Tale. I think it was A levels. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been GCSE. It would have been A levels. So we, I can't remember if we studied it in drama or English. Um, yeah, it's not my favourite. Can I ask what the problem play? What that refers to? Well, go on, Miranda. You take well, it away. <laughs> <laughs> this is the completely non-literary explanation of it, but it's sort of one that finishes and you go, huh? I, am, am I meant to feel sad or happy or what? It's not a comedy. It's not a tragedy. It's somewhere in between. I love them because to me, it's sort of like life, you know, is neither one or the other. It's sort of bittersweet. Um, and, and, but people can pitch them very differently. 
Um, and uh, that's my take on it, which anybody, feel free to write in to the show and say what sure, crap I'm talking. A good ending, right? Almost the best endings are ones where you, you have a bit of a question mark at the end. Well, well, yes. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So that's the one with, uh, is it Exit Pursued by Bear? Yes. So how did you do that? How did they do that? It's like a favor. So, for anyone who doesn't know, because we only talk about Rocky films, basically. Um, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know this, listening, uh, there's this really famous uh, Winter's Tale is uh, um, uh, one of Shakespeare's plays, um, and there's a very famous stage direction where uh, it just says "Exit Pursued by Bear." And it's basically, it's open for interpretation. And then a lot of the time it's kind of, a, there's a blackout and a sound effect or there's someone that comes in dressed as a... It's sort of like, for Shakespeare nerds, it's kind of like, I guess it's one of the reasons to see the show. It's kind of like, what, the show, that's what we call yeah. them. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, how are they going to interpret this stage direction? It's a bit like, which actually Maggie Smith famously played Lady Bracknell in... The importance of being earnest and the famous line, a handbag. Yeah. And I went to see it and I was like waiting for it. And she just said, a handbag. Yes. And, and I think it was, that was a, it was obviously a choice because she knew that everybody would be waiting. And she actually just said it like, a, like you would say a line, like you would yes. say a normal thing, saying it. And I think that, I think there was an echo of that with the Pursued by Bear, but I can't actually remember what we did, but I think it was downplayed. I literally had a conversation with someone this week about uh, Lady Bracknell. And uh, so I saw. Uh, Patricia Routledge on stage. Oh, amazing. And uh, I think it was in the West End. So I saw Patricia Routledge uh, as Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Honest. And then I saw the film with Rupert Everett and Colin Firth and Judi Dench. And the two performances, that is like the big line. And so you got Patricia, <laughs> Patricia Routledge on stage. And she's just like, <laughs> And then you've got you've got Judy Dench, and she just literally she doesn't even move her mouth. She just goes, handbag, and he's going like, oh yeah, it's great. And right. it's kind of like you take that one thing, and you can learn. I think you can learn a lot about an actor. But there must be so much pressure on them as well. They must have to try and do it differently. Well, just yeah, it's such a... either that or there's been a long enough time. So, so Judy Dench had played Hermione before, but a long time before. So there was this whole thing, because there's a long time, and if anyone who doesn't know play, there's a long time where Hermione is, is, is frozen as a statue and everybody thinks that she's dead and that this is a statue of her. So as an actor, you have to stand there for a very, very long time before there is the reveal that actually it is Hermione and she didn't die. And it's sort of, um, it's, it's, it's the, the moment kind of thing. And, um, and everyone was talking about what posture to have. And I said to Judy Dench, how did you stand? And she sort of said, oh, darling, I just sort of did this. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and nobody, you know, it, it was luckily enough time had passed that nobody sort of saw it as plagiarism. Um, well, and there was no YouTube of when she played Hermione, so I got away with it. But it's sort of like a tip of the hat, isn't it? It's kind of like, it's like honouring a, a previous performance. Well, you're not going to go, do you know what, I think I can, I'll probably make better choices than the dame. I'd have told her to fuck off and get American. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the fact that you, I think there's only, so, there's only so many ways that you can stand still on stage for prolonged yeah. periods of time. Oh, it is a good moment, though. It's a good moment because if you, if you can do it right, which they did, they really lit to help me and everything. So you, it really does look like a wax. It looks like right. a Madame Tussauds. And then when 
there's that moment, that kind of breath and move. The audience kind of go, and you're in control of that. Yes. Yeah. So that was sort of like you were buzzing, right? Yeah, I mean, I was partly thinking, please don't fall down the step, please don't fall down the step. But, yeah, buzzing, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, go on. I was going to say, that production, was that part of when Kenneth Branagh sort of took over the character? Yeah. Didn't he? Like a year, yeah. was it? He did yeah, I think it was a year. Was that, year. was that the year he did The Entertainer? Yes, yeah, that's he did what The Entertainer saw. after. That's what I saw. Yeah, 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 I think that was the last in the series, and we would, we did the first. So we actually did two plays. We did Harlequinade, which is a Rattigan play, and, uh, and that one, yeah. Anyway, yeah, he took it over for a long time. And so you've performed at the Globe as well. Um, yeah. I own a brick of the Globe. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. My dad's got me and my sister a brick each uh, when Sam... Uh, uh, Sam Wanamaker. Sam Wanamaker was rebuilding. Yeah. Sam Wanamaker, if you don't know, he is the bad guy in Raw Deal. Um, so um, Sam Wanamaker rebuilt the Globe Theatre in the early 90s, was it? Yes. He's also the father of Zoe Wanamaker and mm. the director of many Columbos and other things. Well, the character... He's in... Um... Last year, he was the character. He was a character in the Quentin Tarantino film. Oh, was he? He was. Yeah. He was the oh, director. Was yeah, he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, uh, he's the director of the cowboy film that Leonardo DiCaprio is in. And it's oh, weird because it's Sam Wanamaker. There's a guy that's playing Sam Wanamaker, and it's uh, it's the guy who was Spider Man, wasn't it, in the seventies? Right. Okay. Well, there you go. That's fan club. Um, so, um, so I own a brick there, and you've performed there. So we're very similar in terms of what we've achieved with our lives. Um, kindred spirits, yeah. So what's, what, was it, what was it like performing at the Globe? So the Globe is about, I think it's the favourite, my favourite venue. Um, I, uh, yeah, I play Dan Berlin um, in a new play by Howard Brenton at the Globe called Anne Berlin. And it was the first new play ever to sell out there. And so we, we actually brought it back again the following year and performing outdoors on a warm night with a packed house in a place like that. You know, occasionally you can hear the old helicopter sort of circling right over the Thames nearby, but even that kind of adds to it. It's, um, it's the most incredible, incredible feeling. It just, um, yeah. I, I I have nothing but fond memories of working there. Because the audience are all standing. Yeah, so so there is lot there's lots of seats and then you have four hundred standing, which are called they're called the groundlings, and they pay I think it's five pounds. It might have changed now. Right. Um but uh but and then you have yeah, there's lots of seating as well. Otherwise right. my parents would not have gone. Or less for a seat. Oh pay more. I've always just sort of assumed that it's all standing and it's kind of like made me a bit scared of seeing anything. Um, no, no, you can you can buy a seat to bring a cushion. Well, I've already got a brick. Do you think I can get a discount? <laughs> I've got a certificate and everything. It says, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a pretty cool dude. Um, a lovely person. It's, um, uh, do you, uh, yeah, I mean, do you... Um, when you're at the Globe and you see everyone standing, do you feel that there's a little bit of pressure to sort of, like, rush through it a bit? Well, so what was really nice about that play was it, it starts with Anne Boleyn walking on stage with a bag and she talks to the audience straight away. So Howard Brenton just, you know, kicked that kind of fit, the fourth wall away. 
and she's uh she says do you want to see it who wants to see it and um the audience sort of you know a few happy globe goers say i do and then she pulls out her own head and they've done a really good mold of my head just severed Mm. and so it begins with her showing the audience her head and then sort of flashbacks to what's you know what's ensued is there even is there a lighting rig at the globe yeah, there there is a, a rig. Well, sort of. It's actually, um, I mean, there has to be because it, you know, it gets dark. But it's not. You, you're not that aware of it. But no, there is a rig, and and we have beautiful lighting on stage. They have very clever ways of doing lighting on stage, as if lighting a room or something. How would they have lit the globe uh, originally? The original With globe. Tor- torches, which is why so many actors caught fire, which isn't a joke. <laughs> Right. Yeah, they no, did. It's... They used to the, the floodlights at the front of the stage. There was were naked flames, and people's old dusty costumes used to go up and. So presumably, it's a, burnt down. It's a new play at the Globe. It was written to be in that environment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, Howard Brenton had written it for the Globe. I mean, it wouldn't have to be performed there if they want to resurrect it anywhere else. Be very delighted. But uh, in fact, they did tour it. I didn't do the tour, but um. But, uh, yeah, he, he did very much write it with her, knowing the theatre. Do you, um, do because of the times that we're living in, do you miss um, the... How do you feel about the fact that, you know, you've got 400 people crammed in together watching a play and now that is kind of like an impossibility? It's just, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, don't, I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen, but... Um, the, the other day, I did a reading of The Odyssey uh, with 72 other actors, and it was on Zoom, um, and it was for t- 12 hours reading. So, I mean, I, we just did a section each, and there were David Threlfall, and you know, quite a lot of actors did it. And, um, and my slot was like 11.20 p.m., like near the very end of the, of the book. And and just before, you know, you, you kind of go into a little waiting room area and it, it wasn't actually Zoom, it was sort of, but it was, a, it was streaming live onto YouTube. And, um, and there was this kind of anticipation and you were in the waiting room with other people and then the reading. And as soon as it was done, I just felt incredibly depressed. It was just the other day and it was like, it was, I just thought that's such a tiny bit of, of what the theatre is, you know, that, that sort of the buzz, the adrenaline, the feeling of kind of camaraderie, the feeling anything might happen, it could all go wrong, all that stuff. And, and it was so tangible. And I thought, when's that going to, when are we going to have that again? I don't know. So the answer is I have no idea. Hmm. Well, we're both stand-up comedians, and so it's kind right. of... It's, yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Oh, but I, I'm, doing, I'm doing some filming at the moment um, where we're doing some sort of stand-up. And the social distancing on how we are all are on set, and uh, we're sort of like watching people doing stand up from an audience, and we're social distance as an audience. It's just sort of like there's no energy. And yeah, right. It's just a really good because for 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 stand up to work, you need to be in like a hot room, like perfect COVID conditions. You need to be in a hot yeah. room. You need to be packed right next to each other. Uh, and uh, you just need to be hot and sweaty, and uh, and it's like laughter is infectious, and yeah. and when you're miles away from each other, there's no energy, and you're not like um, 
you're not like thriving off all the other people in the room and it doesn't feel like it's an event and it's sort of like it's I don't I don't know how I feel because I have an odd relationship with live work but um it yeah I mean it's crazy isn't it I don't really have a point yeah. I'm just I don't, but, do I don't, you, but do you find that people laugh in, in a distanced way is there some like overcompensatory laughter as well to make it even more awkward or is it more just that people don't have the courage to laugh, not en masse, or...? I don't think it's the fact that um, people... It depends what sort of... It's, it's just... It's weird, because it's kind of like... What sort of people actually... Just because you can do a live gig doesn't mean that people are going to want to even come to it. And so... Yeah. The, do you know what I mean? So... Because so, people are scared, you know? Uh, and um, And so it's kind of like who are the people that are turning up anyway? And so it's, you don't you don't even have sort of like a traditional or a regular kind of gauge on who that audience is. Yeah, yeah. So it might be people that are just desperate to leave the house or and there's an opportunity to do something that's not watching Netflix. Or it might be the fact that they're diehard comedy fans and they're just desperate to see comedy. But I don't know. I, I don't know. And so I, I'm... Go on, sorry. No, go on, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I remember... So when I was 17 and I'd just finished A-Levels, we took um, the Changeling to the Edinburgh Festival and we were a big cast. Yeah, I was yeah. in the Changeling once. Were you? Yeah, I was, yeah. Were you? Did you say, the... oh, I can't remember the characters' names? Did you the play boring... the bad guy? I was the boring romantic one that has, like, a sex dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> OK, I can't remember her names, except I played Beatrice Joanna. That's the only name I remember. Right. They'll come flooding back to me after this. Anyway... We were, like, a really big cast, totally disorganised, all kind of doing it with costumes, all coming on in the wrong costume for each scene, always giggles all the time, you know, but loved it and having... And it was our first, you know, in huge inverted commas for radio, professional gig. Um, and uh, we had this brilliant um, sort of acting coach-slash-director with us who, um, uh, a couple of times, we had one person or two people in the audience, literally... That's it. And that's not that unusual for Edinburgh. Um, it's not like we were kind of the show that everybody was clamouring to see. <laughs> and, um, and they said, just, she said, just think that the person out there, this might be the one time they've gone out this week. They might have spent their £8 entrance fee or whatever it is on, this is, their, this is hope for them. They are sitting down not hoping to have a shitty couple of hours you know, because we, if as soon as there are fewer audience than there are performers, you have the right not to do it. So really, these were all get discussions of like, oh, shall we bother? And it was like, if you want to completely disrespect his efforts, then by all means, don't bother. And it was, it was such, a, it sort of stayed with me anyway, as a kind of not worrying about audience sizes. And that sounds like I'm giving you advice. It really wasn't no, 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 advice. No. <laughs> I think sometimes there are audiences at, at small gigs that when they realise it's a small gig, certainly in comedy, I think theatre's probably slightly different. Actually, they would prefer to go home. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is that. Person that, that right. Comedians are desperate for them to... Almost you can look at <laughs> them in the eye and go, please laugh at this, and it puts an enormous amount of pressure on the audience member to go, I'm enjoying it, I'm <laughs> having fun. But I was, the, um, I was the sole audience member for comedian Mike Bubbins' show at the McHuntleth Comedy <laughs> Festival. And I was the only guy in the... I was, it was me and uh, it was Claire who'd basically worked on the production of the show, so she'd seen it 50 times. 
and I was the only genuine audience member. And then maybe there was a technician. And it was one of the best things I've seen because um, Mike just came out and did it like it was Las Vegas. And you go, oh, it's great. He didn't even acknowledge the fact there was only one person in the room. Um, and some of my best gigs have been with, like in Edinburgh, when me and Nat both started out in Edinburgh. And I think that that's such a great sort of like training ground for, for, for I mean, it's, it's becoming more elitist now. But I think when, when, when I, I did my first Edinburgh in 1997, and I think um, it was, we got taken up by the school. We did Romeo and Juliet. And, um, yeah. And uh, I've done shows where there's kind of like been like a handful of people in the audience. And they're always fun because you can kind of come off the rails a little bit and just sort yeah. of like tailor it more for the people in the in the room. But that's a comedy thing rather than, there's no point in bringing you on to talk to you about no one's less funny than me no one's less funny than me really <laughs> i'm sure that's not true um so but speaking of that topic <laughs> you, <laughs> you think, uh, yeah. speaking of speaking of uh, anyway bad, bad <laughs> comedy um so you've been in shakespeare you were also in uh juice big the european Jigler, correct yep yeah. Are we really speaking of comedy? I'm not sure that... I mean, I, <laughs> do you know what? This, the, the first film has kind of like... A, 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 not a large place in my heart, but I did quite enjoy the first one when it came out. Um, the second one I did find quite horrifying. Um, how was, what was... What was it like? What was it like? I, I'm not... You know, you talk, talk about it if you want to talk about it. You don't have to. But, um, well, so that? I'd seen the first one. I mean, not until I was offered the second one. I was offered the second one, and then I saw the first one. And I thought, oh, that's quite, you know, fun and funny. And actually, I think, I think a lot of a lot of actually what happened probably just wouldn't happen now. This, this is actually this conversation is the first time I'm realizing that probably the Me Too times up has already had a huge effect. Mm-hmm. I, 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 can, I can feel just the sort of the idea of being somewhere to be jiggly bosoms and keep your mouth shut um, is is not. I, I maybe maybe it would happen again. Maybe I'm too old for people to want it to happen again. But I, I just um, I think there was a feeling on that of. So I've I've filmed some incredibly intense, serious stuff, and it's been the biggest laugh, and everybody's had to kind of you know stop themselves from from misbehaving sure um and then and then some some things that would be perceived as being kind of farce or comedy which have been just incredibly hard work and no fun at all and and um yeah i I, obviously i don't want to kind of name names or but um it was really i was very unhappy with the powerlessness I felt about as an actor, you know, you want to work and you're told from the minute that you decide to act, everybody tells you it's never going to happen. You'll never get any work. You need to train in something else. You need to have a backup plan. So the actors, comedians who carry on, you haven't probably got, maybe you're both trained barristers. I don't know, but I imagine there's not much of a backup plan. Certainly I don't have a backup plan. So you've kind of taken that plunge and then you get, a job and you get jobs and and it just seems too good to be true but you are always have that feeling I always certainly in my 20s as I was when I filmed that had the feeling of well I'm I should just be grateful and shut up 
because mm -hmm. there are a million other girls who look like me who they could have instead and they've chosen me for whatever reason and um and actually looking back on it one of the reasons that they probably chose me is because I look like somebody that would shut up and I don't think that's a great attribute to have um now as in you look like that you could just stand there like a human prop and... Well, be... you know, smile and sort of do, you know... I, again, I don't even want to talk about the specifics of the film because it's sort of, you know... It, it, I don't want... I think if I... As soon as I start sounding bitter, <laughs> maybe it's too late for that. But, oh, you know, oh it, I've it, done an hour <laughs> of that before you came on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that I guess we're all meant to feel very grateful for things and very yes. and and that's the culture of it is any kind of work you get you're supposed to be like well I'm the lucky one whereas yes. actually, there are some things that you're allowed to say that's unacceptable about and that's that's more what I guess you need to and the feeling the feeling, the feeling of this feels horrible this feels mm. really horrible this feels I'm not feeling pride or like I you know, I'm feeling that kind of awful feeling of shame that you feel when you're little and something's going down that you're not really happy with or do you know what I mean? That, that um, I don't know, you've witnessed somebody being bullied, that kind of thing, and you carry that little shame with you. That mm. was that was, um, was was my experience of kind of, um, well, I shouldn't even... I should deny my feelings. I think that's even the, the stage before denying yourself the right to speak up. Is like, I shouldn't be feeling this. I should just be feeling lucky. Shut your brain down. Mm. You know? Um, anyway. Yeah. yeah, but I know someone that's been on a production recently. And um, and not that... Uh, there was there was some problematic things that were, that were happening during the production. And I think that what the Me Too movement has sort of done is it's enabled people to speak up about it while it's happening, as opposed to, you know, well, they're having a bad time, but if I keep my eyes down and I don't cause a problem, I won't get fired. It kind of, like, actually gives people the power to sort of, like, uh, be able to uh, speak out about things that are going that are going wrong as they're happening and yes. to be able to say, actually, I think that that could be perceived as racist or sexist or misogynistic or whatever. Right, right. And I think that yeah. actually it's gives obviously it's like an empower an empowering movement, but um, I think that I, I don't necessarily know how much people are very self uh, people are very unself aware. So I don't know how much it's going to like um, uh, immediately affect the way people behave and treat people. But I think. Yeah. It gives people the power to actually speak up when that stuff happens. And also maybe, as you said, to defend. So, for example, last thing I'll say on that film that I'm not at all bitter about, we there was something, a scene, that another actress and I refused to do. It was something that wasn't scripted. And they suddenly said, hey, you know, let's try this. That'll be funny. And we were like, uh, I don't think it would be funny. And we called our agents and they said, you don't have to do it. They shot it anyway with doubles. They shot it anyway without us, so it looks just as if we did it. It's There's a tiny a moment, but it's a moment that, that neither me or the other actress did, partook in. We were both in a different country at the time to them filming it. So, um, and, and, you, and you go, oh, my God, that, that, 
they did it. They actually that, and I actually didn't see the film for years after. Um, and uh, and then uh, and, and nobody had said anything. I mean, I hadn't. It never even occurred to me that it would be in there anyway. And um, I, I don't know. It just. It, I think. I think now there'd be more. Uh, you know, I'm losing my thread. Really, except that. I think you know there'd be a stronger leg to stand on now with saying. Sure you know, this is this is not something we agreed to, do not do it, as opposed to maybe in the old days where somebody would say, listen, you've been paid. You've been paid, just let it of go. Of course. Oh, but I've been in similar situations where I, I was in a thing and um, uh, what, I'd signed <laughs> on, what I'd signed on for was something uh, different. And then when we got all the scripts through, there was just loads and loads of fat jokes in it at my expense. And I was just like, oh, I wouldn't have signed on for this because that's not how I depict myself. And, you know, I would have turned this down had that been on the table. Oh. And so we had to go, we had to go through the thing where I talked to my agent and, um, well, I asked them to remove them because I had a bit of power and they refused. And so I had to go through my agent. And then when the sides turned up on the day that we had to do the stuff, all of the jokes were still in there. And I had a moment in my dressing room where I was just like, do I... Go against what, how I feel. I, I, I was, like, frozen because I was in my dressing room and I had to get into the costume and film the scene where they were just going to make fun of my weight. And I was just like, I don't want to leave my dressing room, but I know I'm holding up production, so should I just grin and bear it and go out and just do the stuff that I'm absolutely against, that I said right from day one that I was against it? And then what happened was the producer came in and they printed out the wrong sides and they said, oh, uh, have you looked at your sides yet? And I was like, no. And they said, oh, these are the sides for the day. And I looked and it wasn't in there. But all they'd done was remove the line. So right. where I originally had a line, they didn't invent a new line. They just took my line out of it. And so then it was like, OK, well, that's sort of like the laziest way you could have handled it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's actually given me... I'll do the fat joke if it means that I get more screen time. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But it was like one of those things where you feel pressured because there's a whole machine that's in operation and you're delaying it. And and the pressure when you're immediately on set is, if I just do it, then uh, everyone can get on with their day. But then it's on film forever. And then it's kind of like... and, 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 you know... It's good. I think it's. I mean, I'm very sorry you both had really horrible experiences. That sounds horrific. But I guess that's it as well. Because you must have that pressure as well of feeling like um, you don't want to be perceived as being difficult. I guess that's another side to it as well. Or have, or have a reputation for being awkward or difficult to work with when actually you shouldn't be put in that position in the first place. And I guess I that's, think that's yeah. Absolutely. But actually. Go on. No, go on. Well, I just think fuck them, because yeah. you because you've you've created the problem, and now I have to deal with it, and you're making me look like the asshole for having to yeah. speak up. But you've created that problem. That's it. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think I think as well. If you don't engage in conflict, sometimes I think if you can, if there is, I think there are ways of doing these things, which probably I'm getting better at, where there's no, there is no evidence of of physically holding anything up by wanting your say or you know you can be gracious in your sorry I'm so sorry that's you know that's not that's not going to happen but you know I'm fine I'm here I'm gonna have a cup of tea you you know what I mean it's somehow there's something there's a difference between 
um, being true to yourself and feeling the need to have conflict. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think as well it's that kind of sort of showbiz world of acting and stand-up and things. It's often a place where you don't really have like um, a PR bit of the company that you can go to and say, oh, I don't like this or I don't, this is a problem or I have a, an issue with this person or something that was said. Because I think it's traditionally been something that's almost part of the circus. It's that sort of everyone's a bit, it's a bit more freewheeling Whereas actually there's lots of stuff that can go down that I guess could be used as an excuse as well. Whereas actually, the, you know, it's very important that everyone kind of feels comfortable to be there. Otherwise, and, and, it, and it's good that you've got your, your agents you can go to that they are backing you up as well. Because as, as just that world is almost seen as a bit more freewheeling and it's not, people enjoy that world because it doesn't feel as kind of, corporate and entity is working in an office but in that surrounding you do have some protection which you don't really have in a kind of showbiz environment yeah but there's also the social level where you think if you're in the middle of a production you're thinking i don't want to make the rest of the production awkward you know? yeah because i've got to work with them for another three months or whatever but don't you think don't you think the crew know who's nice you know, the the crew generally know. The crew, it, it's generally, I think, you don't have, like, whoever it might be that's kind of working on the floor, that there's, there's always that ease there. And that if somebody is a little bit tricky, there is a dis-ease there, even if they're lovely to, to them. Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. But then also, it doesn't have to be the entire crew. It has to be, if it's just that one person that you see every day that mm. actually makes the rest of the job an absolute chore. Yes. Then it's kind of like... Have you had that? Have you had somebody that has I ruined the job for you? There's or a relationship that's ruined the job for you? I think there's all... It could be, it could be on, any, on any part of production, right? It might be another performer or it might be... Um, uh, uh, someone behind the scenes or behind the camera, but I think there's always a cunt on every production. Mm. There's always one, and it's, it's, it, it's always and it's always me. Um, uh, I've, so I've never no. I just and there's always someone on one production that you kind of like. Why do you have to be like that? Because everyone else is really kind of like gone into the spirit of things. Um, I don't know. Anyway. And then the last thing I say on that, don't you find then that a really <laughs> older, wiser cast member always just says about that person, darling, they're just insecure. And it always comes down, always comes down to that. Always. I think it is. I think it is. And also for a lot of my worst experiences that have been created by individuals, you look back on it and you go, you can kind of sort of like, you might not realise it at the time while it's happening because you're kind of like when you're on set, you're all, you've got a microphone on and you feel like you're in a Cold War submarine where yeah. you're trying to communicate with your makeup artist through eye gestures going, this is insane. But everyone's, I'm bugged. Everyone's, everyone can hear what I'm thinking at all times. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you have to, but when you're out of the situation, you can kind of rationalise it and you can kind of go, they were having a terrible time. They were being shot on from above and they were just, mm. you know. So I don't know. But that's, I don't know, that's sort of, this is, this is, this is gone <laughs> Is this not your normal? <laughs> no, but it's good. I think it's really good. Um, but um, tell us about trading places. Um, so, um, so we never, we never get. You've got you've got this you've got this huge career that. Um, uh, 
But we never ever talk to our fans, uh, our fans, our guests about what they are fans of, and we always try every week, and it never, it never comes to light. Uh, and even if we try, we get derailed. So let's go through. What are your favourite films? So, I would say the film that I have watched more than any other is Trading Places. Right. Um. The film that I watch when I'm on my own and just want to feel lovely is Adam's Rib. So who's in Adam's Rib? Oh, Spencer Tracy. Is that Spencer and Tracy? Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, yeah. It's Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and you just just have to see it. Just um, it's and Judy Holiday is she won actually won Best Supporting Actress Oscar for it, I think. Um, it's just it, the way they riff off each other, Catherine Hepburn, Spitz Tracy. It's it, the way they, um, that you could, they're so easy with each other. I don't know how many films they'd already made together by the time they did Adam's Rib, um, but they, they just, everything about it is easy. And it was, they, it was made in the 1940s, um, but uh, possibly 1950. I don't know. Anyway, late 40s, early 50s. But um, you know, it, it, it could be any time. It's just mm-hmm. completely. Um, it's a joy. Food. It's total joy. Sorry. Comfort food. Is it that kind of? Um... Well, it's more. Um, there's a lot of. There's a lot of energy in it. You know, it. They're. 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 They have a. It's a sparring. They're sparring partners as well as lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of. And, and also, it, it's not quite switch off. You can't sort of just go and, or have another conversation or send a text when you're watching it because all the little nuances, you don't want to miss anything, you know. Oh, that's the sort of thing that if that was on at the BFI, I would go and see that. Oh, amazing. I've never seen it on the big screen. I would be there in a heartbeat. I, what did I say? I saw Bringing Up Baby uh, last year. And it's great because yeah. if, I watched, if I watched that at home, I would be on my phone and fucking around. And um, you, when, you're at the, when you actually get to sit in a lovely cinema like screen one at the bfi yeah. and you are forced to sort of like pay attention for two hours it's like the best experience oh um, best um and then your th- your third favorite film is uh it, there are a lot of lot of potential thirds but um harry when harry met sally i mm. think would be the probably the film i've also watched the most and then there'd be flash dance <laughs> so oh, nothing, well. well, nothing wildly highbrow. Flashdance well, was a total favourite. When I saw Flashdance, I saw I saw it quite late, and when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, this must be what men feel like when they watch Top Gun." I was just right, like, I, right, I loved right. it so much. Oh, I love Flashdance awesome. so much. Awesome. Yeah, fun. it's great. Uh, yeah. But when when Harry Met Sally is one of the, I maybe um, I don't know because a lot of people don't like Sleepless in Seattle, but I think Sleepless in Seattle is probably like the last classic. Uh, Hollywood romantic comedy, but I think when Harry Met Sally was like maybe the penultimate. Of, it's like so the I, end of an era. It's beautiful. When, um, Sleepless in Seattle is beautiful, but you know they really don't get any scenes together, which of course mm. is kind of the point. Um, when Harry Met Sally, just be- you know between them, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, they're so mismatched. They're so you know she's like a foot taller than he is. I'm obsessed with everything about Meg Ryan in that film, um, and and the. Just the way they are together is just so funny. So un- you, it's like no dialogue you've heard before. Mm. Um, and Rob Reiner's 
direction everything's just amazing well i'm of the opinion that rob reiner is the greatest director of the 1980s i think right. he's i think he's better than spielberg he, like he did every genre he did you know i go on about it all the time but he did spinal tap uh, stand by me he did when harry met sally princess bride he did uh what's that john cusack film uh, the sure thing he did uh, Misery, A Few Good Men. Like, did he, he did do Misery? He did Misery. Did he? Did he? he did, yeah, his production company is Castle Rock, which is named after... Uh, when he did Stand By Me, which is another Stephen King adaptation, uh, he set up a production company, Castle Rock, which is where Stephen King bases most of his stuff. And so then, every time you see Castle Rock, that's a Rob Reiner film. Like, he did so many films, all the way up to North. They're all five-star classics, and they're all completely different genres. They might be comedies, but like he like invented yeah. the mockumentary. And it's Did you say like, Princess Bride? Yeah, Princess Bride. Like Princess he made, yeah. they were just, uh, they were all bangers, like one after another. Yeah. Like what a run he did! Like seven. Did or eight he films. do all the Christopher Guest ones? He did Waiting for Guffman no. and Best in Show. No, no, no. no, he did Spinal Tap, and then Christopher Guest did all of the Christopher Guest uh, ones. Okay, that makes but, sense. Um, but it's so good. Oh, we're running out of time. Uh, what's your favourite bit in Trading Places? Oh my God! Um, uh, favourite bit. Oh, one dollar. Does that <laughs> ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's the yeah. two old men in the bathroom. Mortimer. Um, oh, no, it, well, it's they, they, two old men, and then it's actually um, the, uh, Dan Aykroyd who says one dollar like that. But there's the moment in the bathroom when... Um, oh, when they have that amazing conversation where the old man says... The, uh, what's that actor's name? Ralph Bellamy. Oh, and he says, you know, they're very musical people, aren't they? And all that kind of thing. And they just have this awful conversation. And, um, oh, I've forgotten the... Anyway, please Ralph Bellamy is also in, yeah. in a screwball comedy way, is in His Girl Friday. And when they ask, yeah. oh, what does he look like? They say, oh, he kind of looks a bit like um, Ralph Bellamy. I, I like that. Just a oh, nice, that is good. Like an extra bit of joke. Um, <laughs> my my favourite bit in Trading Places is the bit when they explain to Eddie Murphy what pork bellies are, and then he looks directly down the camera and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like I just that. think, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Uh, it's such a good film. He says, "Or bacon, like you might have in a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich." <laughs> and then he looks directly down the camera, like what the yeah. fuck? And then he's just, so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, so we've uh, we're almost at the end. We've got to play a game with you now. I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel, and uh, he will take it away. Hey, Miranda, this is a game called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. The score oh, point. On your opinion? On my opinion. Okay. Yeah. okay. Beginning with Prince. But is Freddie Mercury better or worse than Prince, based on worse. my opinion? Worse. It's worse. Oh, wow, that was a tough one. That was a really tough one. Paul McCartney, better or worse than Freddie Mercury? Worse. Uh, worse. Paul McCartney is better. Wow, this is a tough one. David Bowie, better or worse than Paul McCartney? Better. Better. John Lennon, better or worse than David Bowie? Worse. 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 Mick Jagger, better or worse than John Lennon? Worse. Worse. Ringo Starr, better or worse than Mick Jagger? Better. Oh, Yellow Submarine, not sure. Uh, worse. Better. Oh, wow. Uh, George Harrison, better or worse than Ringo Starr? Better. Better, I'm going to say. Better. Elton John, better or worse than George Harrison? Worse. 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 Elvis Presley, better or worse than Elton John? Uh, better. 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 
Elvis Costello, better or worse than Elvis Presley? Worse. By the downward intonation, I'm going to say worse. Worse. Well intonated. You got, <laughs> eight. You got eight. You got eight. Okay, so you scored, a, you scored an eight, uh, which means that you're not quite as good with Jen Brister, <gasps> Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joe Cladani, uh with ten, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Eston, David Hepworth, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine. Chris Starks, Stu Whiffen with eight, and you're better than James King, Henry Normal, Johnny Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney with six. So you've absolutely smashed that. Samantha um, Morton, I'll take Samantha Morton. She's oh, one of yeah. my favourites. Uh, that was uh, that was a really great uh, chat. Thanks for absolutely thanks for coming brilliant. on. Um, uh, you've got. Um, we've been talking to uh, Miranda Raisin, who's now uh, uh, a member of the clubhouse. <laughs> we haven't worked out. We've not worked out to wrap up. We're working on how to wrap okay, up. Okay, okay. Uh, and you're in uh, Warrior season two, which is on Sky One on Wednesdays at ten. Uh, don't go anywhere. Um, uh, but for everyone listening at home, thank you very much for listening today. I hope you're all keeping well and safe. And me and Nat will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening. Bye.